Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode of Mission Log is also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Take the Helix Sleep quiz and get up to $200 off your new mattress and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 405, His Way. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a chance on Star Trek by looking at each and every episode in each and every series, and even the films, in search of the morals, meanings, and messages. This week, His Way, the one where Clyde tries to overcome his self-doubt with the help of a 1960s Las Vegas lounge Wait, singer. Hold on, what? Hmm? A, a, a Clyde. What, what's a Clyde? You mean Odo? Uh, exactly, Odo. You know, he's he, he's the Harvey in this episode. Harvey? Who's Harvey? Harvey's the square. What does one side of a cube have to do with Odo? It's slang, Pally Norm. Definitely need to catch up on the hip lingo sometime later. But for now, at least you know how to tell everybody else where to find us. Right, you are, Daddy-O. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, for his 405th opening for Mission Log, please give a warm welcome to your trivia host, John Champion. He'll be here all night. Tip your waiters, folks. All right, tonight's episode, His Way, was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler. So here we have one of those situations where a good idea was hard to keep down. Remember Children of Time, where the Defiant crew met their descendants and we got to meet Casual Friday Odo? Well, that accelerated the need to have some sort of payoff for the relationship that was hinted at. It was also an idea that Ira had a few seasons ago about working in a new character, a lounge singer, who could be there as an entertainer and a dispenser of advice. More on that a little later. 
It was directed by Alan Croker, and uh, we just discussed one of his episodes a few weeks ago with One Little Ship. He'll be around a bit longer with five more DS9 episodes in his name. Now, what's interesting in retrospect when you look at interviews with the crew is all of them talking about how much this was a step outside of their usual comfort zones, which then made production on this twice as hard in Ira's estimation, just to pull it off. It it was something that comes across as light entertainment, but it was that much more difficult. And Ira gives a lot of that credit to, well, Alan, and among many others on the crew and in the cast. This one got an Emmy nomination for a music direction, and that shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. Jay Chataway, who we've mentioned in passing before, was putting together the score as well as the songs for this episode and really doing it on the fly. According to him, they were getting permissions on the songs sometimes the same day as the recording sessions, which led him to improvise a bit on the arrangements. Well, let's talk about our guest stars. We have a couple of smaller roles here in the Hall of Suite, two women who are carryovers from Bashir's spy program, although we didn't actually meet them in the episode Our Man Bashir. Those are Debbie Monahan and Cindy Pass, as Melissa and Ginger, respectively. Debbie will come back for a guest appearance on an episode of Voyager, while Cindy will be back for one more episode of DS9. Finally... It takes a special talent to fill the virtual shoes of Vic Fontaine, the new character who we'll meet this week. As I mentioned, Ira had in mind something along the lines of this character before, and there were many jazz singers who they had in mind, even going so far as having discussions with Frank Sinatra Jr., who was very much uh, interested in Star Trek. He was actually a Star Trek fan, but he wanted to play an alien. So no dice there. Many other singers turned it down, too, uh, like Steve Lawrence. I mean, I I like him, and uh, maybe he would or would not have been the right fit. Then there was Robert Goulet, Jerry Vale, Tom Jones. They all turned it down. When Ira and a friend of his just happened to run into James Darren, Ira knew they had the right guy. The casting session is spelled out in great detail in Terry Erdman's Deep Space Nine Companion with full commentary from Ira, so go read that. It's a blast. But about James Darren, or as we'll call him from now on, Jimmy, go way back to the juvenile delinquent movies of the 1950s. Then fast forward a little bit to the beach shenanigans of Gidget, and you'll find a young actor just cutting his teeth but finding recognition pretty quickly. In 1966, he starred in the Irwin Allen cult favorite, The Time Tunnel, for all of its one season. That was right after he did one episode of Allen's hit show, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. In the 70s, he'll pop up on Fantasy Island and The Love Boat, of course. And in the 80s, he was starring alongside Bill Shatner in T.J. Hooker. Also, don't forget that he was in The Guns of Navarone. And he was even in a 1968 sci-fi TV special called The Man from the 25th Century, which had nothing to do with Buck Rogers, but in fact used clips from Lost in Space to build a story about a human being tested by aliens. It was written and directed by Irwin Allen as well. But keep in mind, during all of this, Jimmy was also singing, and he was very close family friends with the Sinatras, particularly Nancy and Frank Jr., So when he talks about hanging at the casino with Frank and Dino, yeah, that's from real life. And coincidentally, Jimmy is married to Evie Norland, who starred in a 1959 movie called The Flying Fontaines, but that's just a coincidence.
when the moon hits your eye while you're just flying by. That's a story, but here's this week's story. Prologue Our story begins in the lounge of one Vic Fontaine, dressed to the nines in his finest tuxedo, with microphone in hand, and serenading his audience to a 400-year-old classic, You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You. Towards the back of the lounge, holding up the bar, are Dax, resting comfortably in Worf's arms, Odo, Kira, Miles, and Julian. After finishing his set, Vic sidles up to Bashir and his entourage, and even before proper introductions are made, he confesses that he's a pretty decent singer, for a light bulb, that is. A, a what? Forgive the slang. A light bulb is Vic's icebreaker to the group, meaning he's a hologram, and a very well-programmed one thanks to Bashir's holosuite supplier, Felix, you know, the one who wrote his infamous spy program. After a few very clear observations on the romantic, or lack thereof, dynamics amidst certain paired-off members of the crew, Dr. Bashir escorts his friends back to Quark's bar, as Vic reminds them that the next time they come into the lounge, it's formal attire, baby, not circus wear. Shortly after, in Quark's, Julian invites everyone back for another evening at Vic's to see the full program, but Kara has other plans. She's going down to Bajor to meet with Shakar, a trip she's kept secret to avoid any unnecessary speculation. From Dax, from Julian, especially Julian, and from Odo, who is taken aback by Kira's travel plans. As the evening winds down, Odo overhears Julian tell Miles that Vic is more than just a program. Vic is well-learned in the art of life, love, and women, three things that Miles pokes fun at Julian for knowing nothing about. Julian, and most notably Quark, who is standing there all the while, observing. Always observing. Act 1. In Odo's office, it seems that both he and Quark are embroiled in a very sensitive discussion about what Quark originally thought would have been a pretty straight-up visit about his missing shipment of groat clusters. However, Odo's been bothered about something far more personal, and far be it from Quark not to bend his ever-so-experienced Ferengi ear as bartender. Odo is still in love with Kira, but hasn't done anything in over a year to, as Quark puts it, open negotiations to close the deal. What a romantic... So, what is Odo to do? But, and still unbelievable to Odo himself, ask Quark for a personal favor, to borrow Dr. Bashir's Vic Fontaine Holosuite program. Much, much later, a very exhausted and tense Dr. Bashir lumbers into Quark's bar looking for some distraction. Quark suggests that a warp core breach, the fishbowl-sized drink, that is, would put some pep in the doctor's step. Julian, however, fancies a visit with Vic. But Quark waves him off, stating that all the hollow suites are full up until the morning. Still restless, Julian decides to go bother Miles for a game of Tongo. Perhaps Keiko is away. Uh, again. In Vic's lounge, it's after hours, and both he and Odo are leaning up against the bar. Vic sips a healthy few fingers of whiskey while reminiscing fondly about Frank and Dean. Sinatra and Martin, to be specific. But Odo curtly interrupts and explains that he's there for Vic's advice. Because the other night, Vic alluded to some kind of tension between Odo and Kira. But what kind? Vic admits that there's something between Odo and Kira, but Odo is too ice-cold, too in the nook of the north, and needs to touch base with his feelings, his emotions for Kira. And the only way to do that is to relax, baby, and have fun. So, following Vic's lead... 
Odo transforms into his finest interpretation of a tuxedo as Vic whisks him up to the stage to play piano. But there's no audience. Snap. Sure there is, Pally. And thus begins Odo's first lesson, learning how to be cool and not frigid by just enjoying the skin that he's in, you dig? Act 2. After the show, and later in Vic's apartment, both he and Odo toast Odo's newfound appreciation for experiencing fun with a few technically non-alcoholic beverages. You know, holographic booze, remember? But just as things start going Odo's way, he tenses up again, worried about how his colleagues, meaning his friends, would have thought of him up on the stage, tickling the ivories. Vic gives Odo yet another very simple piece of advice. Just breathe, Pally. Relax, and everything you want will come to you. Shortly after, there's a knock at the door as two gorgeous women, Melissa and Ginger, arrive at Vic's invitation, which he charmingly forgot about. Or did he? Melissa is immediately drawn to Odo, and in particular his hands, the hands of a piano player, and so artistic. And, like all evenings in Las Vegas, even though one has just ended, another begins, as Vic has made plans to take everyone to the dunes and see Shecky Green. Who? Odo asks. Perfect, Pally. Ladies love a sense of humor. And even though Odo is still fixated on how this will help him win over Major Kira, Vic presents Odo with one of the greatest lessons ever advised, couched in one of the oldest riddles ever told. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Later in Cisco's office, while delivering a security report, Odo awaits the captain's response and begins humming. Cisco at first can barely believe his ears, and with a smile joins Odo in a few bars of The Way You Wear Your Hat. Meanwhile, as Julian and Jedzia share a turbo lift, the two gossip about how Kira's now extended trip with Shakar as Dax lets slip poor Odo. Poor Odo, to which Julian responds, Odo, what does he have to do with it? And Dax replies, not a thing. That's the problem. Back in Vic's lounge, our intrepid light bulb spots Odo behind the piano, looking sullen and forlorn. Odo admits that as much as he appreciates Vic's tutelage, he feels no closer to figuring out what to do about his feelings for Kira. Just then, Vic announces that he has a very special guest this evening, Miss Lola Cristal, whose looks make the temperature in the room rise, and, most unnerving to Odo, a holographic dead ringer for Kira, who slinks her way across the stage and eventually atop the piano as Odo wrestles with what he's feeling inside. Act 3 After coming down from a fever-pitched performance, Vic, Lola, and Odo retire back to his apartment, where, after deftly pouring a champagne fountain for his guests, and toasts to whatever makes you happy, leaves Lola and Odo to get better acquainted. However, Odo can't help but let Vic know that no matter how perfect the hologram, Lola is not, nor ever will be, the real Kira. Back on the promenade, the real Kira accidentally runs into Odo, as he is doing his normal daily rounds. However, their reunion is both awkward and short, as he purposely keeps his distance from her. A tension that Kira easily senses, and also responds in kind. Later, while meditating in her own personal and private holosuite program, 
A shadowy yet well-dressed figure emerges from behind a cave wall and breaks Kira's concentration. It's Vic. Don't ask how. And he's there, literally in between sets from his evening's performance to persuade Kira that Odo has changed and to give him a chance. Kira's put off that Odo isn't forward enough to approach her himself, but Vic convinces her to come to the Hollow Suite later for a very special evening. Crazy. Act 4. Like an artificial intelligence version of Cupid, Vic also contacts Odo in the security office over secure comms. A- again, don't ask how. The important thing is, is that Vic convinces Odo to return to the Hollow Suite for another try with a far more realistic Kira program. With both the real Major Kira and Odo seated at a very romantic dinner table for two, waited on by Vic himself, their evening has been planned to the nines, beginning with a toast of Dom Perignon, with Oyster's Rockefeller to begin the evening's course, followed by Caesar's salad, with Chateaubriand for two as the main course, and to complete their culinary journey, Cherry's Jubilee. The setting is extravagant, but disappears quickly as Odo stares into Kira's eyes, believing that she is in fact the most perfect holographic version he's ever seen in every detail, even knowing the smallest details about Odo's life. Well done, Vic. And it is because Odo believes that he can be the very best version of himself in the presence of a version of Kira who he believes can truly appreciate the change he has embraced within himself, he summons the courage to dance with her, hold her close, and wishes to keep doing so, as does Kira herself, suggesting a second date. But Odo wonders, since she can't leave the hollow suite, uh, oh, to borrow the vernacular from Vic's era, it looks like the jig is up, as both Kira and Odo realize that they have been played to perfection by Vic, even though all he wanted to do was get these lovebirds together. Odo has been dancing with the real Makira all night, and Kira thought that Odo had finally found a way to be himself with her, the real him with the real her. And as they both storm out in anger, Kira shoots one last piercing glance at Vic, who says, Don't say it. Computer. End program. Act 5. The following day, Vic tries to apologize to Odo, but Odo still feels betrayed and hurt by the very mentor in whom he placed his trust, his vulnerability. Vic keeps insisting that Kira digs Odo, but Odo shuts down Vic by insisting that it's Shakar who Kira digs, Pally. While walking the promenade with Dax, Kira can't help but wear her emotions on her face, and Dax can't help but ask what is wrong. Kira explains to Dax what can only be described as having a moment of clarity, and having nothing to do with Shakar. Dax responds and says she has only had two such clarifying moments in all of her seven lifetimes, as moments of clarity are truly, truly rare. But Kira, while watching Odo go about his business outside a security office, tells Dax that not only did she have one, but she just had another right then and there. Two moments of clarity in two days. That must count for something. Kira chases down Odo as he tries to rush away from what he believes would be an awkward and emotional confrontation with the Major. And he was right. Right then, right there, in the middle of the promenade, in front of everyone with an earshot of their conversation, in front of friends, colleagues, strangers, and even the prophets themselves, Kira and Odo lay each other's emotions bare 
and dismiss a second date, dismiss having dinner, dismiss all the trappings and trimmings and pretense of dining and dancing around what they both ultimately wanted from each other when all of the walls came down. That one moment, that one connection, that one affirmation that proved to each other what they have known all along. That one true, devastating, passionate kiss and they got what they wanted. They got under each other's skin. Back at Vic's, Odo tells him about it and why he's not been around for a while. But Julian's already filled in Vic about how Odo and Kier are quite the item. As Odo leaves, Vic invites him to take the piano for a tune or two. However, Odo has someone special to see, and Vic asks him to keep the program running for a while so he can sing a bit. Odo, remembering Vic's wise words, tells him, Whatever makes you happy. The end. Uh, Norm, you took me right back to watching that episode. Thank you so much for the recap. And look, I'm just going to say it right up front. This is going to be a really hard episode for me to talk about. And I don't mean that in the way where we get into something really challenging, morally ambiguous, uh, where where we have to wrap our heads around, like, what is this doing to our expectations of Star Trek? No, it's not about any of that. This is going to be difficult for me because I'm already biased. I'm already in love with this show from the very first frame of film. The Prophets, the same way they asked Benjamin Sisko, why do you live here? Yes, I live here. I live here in my mind. So I'm already here, Norman. <laughs> Just you lead the way. I hear you. I feel yeah. you, Daddy-O. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at the very beginning, I mean, I loved it, too, when you see kind of like the sequin, you know, Vic Fontaine sign and yeah. the nightclub and the atmosphere. Everyone's dressed to the nines. The table settings are perfect. But then you kind of like you pull back and you get to see the crew that aren't in period wear. Yes. I know why, because they, they did a bit joke about the trapeze, the trapeze artist. But yes. I was like, you know, it was I, I would have liked to have seen them all like in period. That yes. would have been really cool. Yeah. Um, now, I, I do feel like uh, just from my limited knowledge of what's coming, like we might get there someday. But mm-hmm. the trapeze act line was perfectly placed. Everybody in there, I, well, obviously we saw it with Odo, they would look great in period attire. I think so. And yeah. I just want to clarify for the audience that it's it's Vic Fontaine and not Vince Fontaine, <laughs> who's a whole other cool cat, yes. right? Hanging out with the kids at Rydell High with Johnny Casino and the Gamblers. And away we go, right? <laughs> yeah. I bet you know the hand jive. I bet you know the whole thing. Yeah. I may have done it once or twice okay. in my youth. Okay. Yeah. All right. mm-hmm. uh, I do like we have a callback to Felix uh, Bashir as well. Felix Leiter, as we pointed out in our man Bashir. I mean, come on, got to be one of the same. Uh, yeah, that's that's obviously an inspiration, right, for yeah. our man Bashir's, you know, un, a clandestine, unseen programmer. But okay, so Felix designed this hologram. Yeah. Uh, or Vic, who's obviously very special. Yeah. Self-aware, etc. So, how talented exactly is Felix? <laughs> He's, he needs to get picked up by Starfleet Intelligence or something because he's really good, like frighteningly good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I do love, you know, we mentioned the trapeze act and how out of place they are. Uh, Worf is the biggest Harvey in the room. I mean, like there's, so square. there's no, no question about it. But this is one of those places where Worf's squareness really works mm-hmm. for the scene. Well, and, um, I, I, you know, when when the chief was squirming... <laughs> 
He got busted. <laughs> he got so busted when Vic says, "Hey, look, Pally, but don't touch." Yes, right. It's okay to yes. look, but you're married. You're a married guy, so yeah. you know. Yeah, it's what happens when Kate goes away. I guess. Right from the start, I already knew that I was going to have questions about some of the motivations in the script. I mean, uh, they they have that little scene in the teaser. They're all in there. They're having a good time, and then they leave. But wait, they they all had to leave the Hall of Suite to to do what? To to go hang out and have a beer at Quarks? No, no, just stay, yeah. just stay at Vic Fontaine's. Come on, give me a break. Moving on, though, in the episode, I do love how uh, Quark and Odo interact in that one little scene in the security office. Quark's line, you're not even the most lovable person in this room. <laughs> Perfect. Perfection. Perfection. Yeah. And also, I, I love how, how Quark describes, like, romance or, uh, you know, dispenses his advice for romance yeah. yes. as a business transaction. Of That's course. still so very consistent yeah. about being a Ferengi, yeah. right? Of course. And in Quark's Bar, the famous Warp Core Breach drink. Ah, and how I miss Star Trek the experience. This is one of those moments of uh, art imitating life, imitating art. So they actually came up with this for the experience. The, the experience had opened in January of 98. This episode aired in April of 98. So if you had been watching this show and you're like, ooh, I'm going to get down to Star Trek The Experience, boom, right from the screen, there's the Warp Core Breach. I saw, I've saw. i seen pictures of that from The Experience. That looked like it was a game ender. Oh, it, it was dangerous. Ten ounces of alcohol and I served for two, well, two very daring individuals. I think I usually wow. shared it with three other people. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. It was intense. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, man. Uh so when, when Quark was making his, his Warp Core Breach, did I spy a frosted Klingon blood wine cup when he was pouring out his dry ice? You did, you did. And I think that is the perfect uh, sort of detail for the next time a Warp Core Breach gets made. I think you have to use that. Yeah. Ah, well, mm-hmm. well done. Now, of course, Julian would wake up Miles in the middle of the night, because why not? I mean, who would wake up their best friend in the middle of the night if his wife were not there? <laughs> See? Precisely. Precisely, yeah. yeah. I, I do want to uh, just point out a fashion thing here real quick, that in the holodeck, or in the holo suite rather, I'm surprised that Odo went with the continental or crossover tie uh, rather mm-hmm. than the traditional bow tie, only because it, this is a very specific look in the 50s, early 60s, and not nearly as well known as the traditional bow. So I'm surprised that he would have seen one at all in order to kind of then mimic that when he does his uh, quick change morphing into, uh, you know, out of his Nanook of the North look and into a tux. Uh, but it was an interesting uh, style choice for the wardrobe department to put him in. I mean, for me, I'm a, I'm a fairly traditional butterfly t- bow tie man myself when mm-hmm. it comes to a tux. But, you know, it's, yeah. it's style, baby. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's it, it says that, that one didn't last too, too long. It, it, it was kind of a blip on the fashion radar. You see it every now and then now, but most people go with the traditional. I really like the scene where, where Vic was sipping his whiskey when Oda was trying to seek advice from him. Because like the refined gentleman or holodeck program, whatever, that he is. He was drinking it neat, three fingers, like a refined gentleman. Yes, and I do want to point out that I really like the fact that um, that he mentions that they were in a hollow suite 
so it's not real. Because, yeah. I mean, I, first of all, it's the <laughs> self-awareness that's fun anyway. But Dean Martin, certainly on stage, rarely ever drank real alcohol because he had to do a show. He had to perform. And you, you can't perform to that level with that frequency if you're bombed. So right. uh, I, that, that was sort of like a nice real-world thing for me to, to notice in there. But it's not to say that Dean didn't know how to hold his booze. Oh, no. I mean, certainly the Rat Pack uh, left to their own devices, not on stage. Yes, they, yeah. uh, they certainly enjoyed a drink or two. But, uh, but apparently Dino was, uh, was less uh, attached than, say, like Frank. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and I do love the shout-outs to the real world. I mean, <laughs> Liberace... Victor Borga, Shecky Green, and just them being at the Dunes, you know, going over to the Dunes to see uh, Shecky's show. Uh, wonderful details. I'm so glad they had that in there. Um, apparently, uh, Ira is just a big Vegas entertainment fan, and this was all part of his desire to just work that in. Apparently, Felix was a big Vegas fan as well. Exactly. 20th century, mid-century Vegas fan. Because when you think about it, uh, it, just in terms of the world building and the Holosuite programming, the details are what matter, right? So in Vic's Lounge, especially at the the end of the set or the closing of the bar, you know, Odo was there and he had... You know, the cocktail umbrella and then the, the sign that you know, said Vic Fontaine on the back of the stage was covered with those blue sequins, so it shimmered. Yeah. And you had the martini fixings tray, you know, everything was very period perfect. You know, the lamps on the table is very Copacabana-ish. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of you know, attention to detail that you look for in a period piece like this because uh, in a holodeck, you got to get it right, yeah. you know, and... Obviously, Felix is, is a pretty decent perfectionist when it comes to this stuff. It, it was fun to read that the big mural behind the bar, uh, the art department had put together based on looking at 1950s cocktail napkins and pulling mm-hmm. some of the motifs from that and then doing that big mural. So very cool. I think the uh, the scene, though, in this episode that really kind of made me like sit up and take notice is when he he summoned the his own audience. And mm-hmm. when when we when he uh, asked uh, Odo to play the piano for the first time, I was like, a hologram summoning something that usually the host of that program usually summons. This is different. Yeah, this yeah. is way different. Oh, um, and one thing that I really thought was a nice touch: as soon as Odo sat behind the piano, which was a player piano, well, uh-huh. it, was a, it was Vic's player piano. The brand on the piano where it usually says like Steinway or, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of a piano, it said Mentor. Yes. And I said, that's a nice touch. Perfect. That's a nice yeah. touch. Oh, and <laughs> I did mention this in my write-up. Uh-huh. But when Melissa looked at Odo's hands in Vic's apartment and she said, oh, so artistic, <laughs> I died laughing out loud. Yeah. It's just such a... Vegas show girly kind of thing to say, I guess. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to sound sexist about it, but it just felt very period backstage. Well, that's the thing. You know? Yeah, it was written to the period. So that, yeah. that was really the, the fun of it there, you know. Um, let's talk about that scene in Cisco's office. They can't take that away from me. That, mm-hmm. What a great moment. What a great moment for them to have. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I especially love it because there's no punchline. They just let the camera sit there, take them both in, and then just cut away from that. It was perfect timing where a scene didn't need to be, like, hammered into your head. And by the way, you know, when you were talking about Vic summoning the audience, let's talk about something even more sort of mind-blowing than that. 
Vic programmed the Lola hologram, Kira, the, the Lola hologram from Bashir's spy story. That, so intelligence creating intelligence. I mean, that, that's a throwaway line, but holy crap, they're, they're alive and Vic is a genius, okay? <laughs> Vic is a genius because Felix is some kind of a mad genius and th- this is creating intelligence and modifying somebody else's program, not to mention getting into the comms system, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do like that in story, in universe, the data from these programs is being recycled for, I guess, more uh, honest purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I thought that was really neat. Yeah. Um, and you didn't have to start from scratch. You started with a, a fairly robust program of Kira. Right. And then you just kind of like uh, rewrote it in a way. Um, right. But I really thought that uh, Nana in that performance as, as uh, Lola Cristal, I mean, she brought her A game. I mean, the last yeah. time I saw a performance like that was when Michelle Pfeiffer was yeah. polishing the top of a piano yeah. in the fabulous Baker Boys. And that was 10 years earlier. Yeah. almost. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. I, I got to mention it. You mentioned it in the recap. The menu, that food, mm-hmm. it just speaks to me. Dom Perignon 55. Now, uh, interestingly, the previous vintage year was 1953. The next vintage year was 1959. So a little bit of a gap. It's usually like every two years, but there's a bigger gap from the 55 to the 59. So prime time to drink that 55 would have been starting at about 1963. I think this episode maybe takes place with the Hollow Suite takes place a little bit before that, but that's around the prime time for that. And come on, oysters, Rockefeller, all time favorite, Caesar salad, Chateaubriand, cherries, Jubilee. I just wish we had seen Vic flambe those tableside. That's the only mm-hmm. thing we were missing. I was gonna do my I was gonna do my note on this, but I was like, you know what? This is. John's bag, baby. This is John's bag. Right <laughs> it here. Is. I, look, I, we'll, we'll just spin off and we'll do a whole other show about mid-century menus, and I'm all over it. I do, to, to make it a little bit more serious here for a moment, and we'll get into this in the next segment too, I feel, maybe. I like how Odo's experience in the Hollow Suite is a bit like therapy. You know, he, he has someone there to ask good questions. That, that's Vic. And then the pressure is off when he thinks he's talking to a dispassionate observer, Kira, to work through his problems. That, that's like, it shows a really thoughtful benefit of having a system like the Hollow Suite, uh, where you're, you're going through those same processes and using the intelligence of the, uh, the programming behind it to actually elicit something of quality out of the people playing it, where it isn't just a frivolous game. So I think that's I mean, the, the nice, thoughtful part of this episode. But it's like right up until it doesn't, because I think that Odo mm-hmm. is, is fairly you know, savvy enough to understand that he knows his, his uh, threshold for his own Uncanny Valley, mm-hmm. where he knows what is real and what is not real. And I like that, that he's able to, be able to, to make that distinction when it needed to be made, yeah. when he really needed to expose himself and his feelings and and be at his most vulnerable i I thought that was actually really smart of the writers to do that yeah Uh, some of the things that i did kind of highlight in my in my uh, wrap-up um or my uh, my synopsis Uh vic showing up in kira's meditation program one and then him (laughs) jumping into the comms at will the other kind of you know Uh, well it's, it's like the benevolent version of moriarty you know exactly exactly (laughs) right Mm -hmm. but uh, so many genuine moments come from these interactions like kira's laugh 
during her dance with Odo. That that was just gold. It felt so genuine, so such a real moment, you know. And, Performed and I, or ad-libbed I, or improvised? See, that's a good question because so often on DS9 – I'll point out other characters who laugh, and it sounds completely fake. And, uh, for example, at the beginning of One Little Ship, I thought her mm-hmm. fake, her, her laugh sounded really fake. In this, maybe they did a couple of takes, but each time it sounded genuine. Yeah, so I thought that was totally. a great moment. Um, I also, as a moment, I love that there are more extras on the station watching Odo and Kira kiss than just about any other episode of DS9. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like Vic said, man, it's love, baby. Nothing yeah. better than that. Exactly. And look, I want to jump to the end a little bit here. That old convention of the, the lovers who are brought together, then are in for a surprise, and then they feel fooled. And I know it's a longstanding trope in romantic comedies. You have to break them up before you get them back together. And I think in this case, it's pretty funny and endearing. Yeah, look, Odo has every right to feel embarrassed, especially since he's Odo. But, but come on. He actually got to have a real moment with Kira, and then she, in a real moment, reciprocated. He should be thrilled. You know, John, I figured out who Felix is. Who's that? Felix is John Hughes. (laughs) You're so right. You can tell this is happening in a computer-generated Las Vegas, because people spend an evening there and can actually recall it the next day. We'll get right back to his way in a moment, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Now, look, there are a ton of VPN providers out there. Uh, You've probably heard of a couple of them. You're probably getting bombarded with ads for them everywhere. And you might have even used a VPN before. Uh, But Norman and I, well, we like to do our research on our sponsors. And um, we only recommend the brands to our listeners that we believe in, that we actually use and can endorse. And that is why with full confidence – that we recommend ExpressVPN and think that it is the best VPN on the market. Uh, Norman, why don't you tell the folks why? Well, one of the most important things is that ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Now, lots of really cheap or free VPNs, we see those online, we see those ads, they make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server, and that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. The other thing that I really, actually, it's funny, Mm -hmm. didn't really notice about ExpressVPN, and it's something that you don't need to notice, is how fast it is. Because speed is something that you usually just try and meter, but you don't even really pay attention to, and that's a good thing. And you don't have to worry about it with ExpressVPN. I've tried a lot of VPNs in the past. A lot of them slow your connection speed or make your device sluggish, and I've been using ExpressVPN for right now, how long have I been with Mission Log? For like the last yeah, almost two years. Year, yeah, yeah, year and a half. A year and a half. Two years, yeah. And my internet speeds have never slowed down. They're as fast as they've ever been. So even when I connect to servers that are thousands of miles away, I can still stream high-quality HD videos with zero lag. And the last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how, it's, how easy it is to use. And you don't have to have these convoluted inputs or programs or anything like that. You just fire up the app, which I love doing, 
and uh, it's just literally a click one button to connect type system. It's easy. I can't believe I'm going to say that. It's so easy that your grandparents could use it. I have grandparents. And I do believe that my grandma can use this. Yes, yes. And and look, you don't have to just take our words for it. Go out and look at the reviews. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and so many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN in the world. And there are many good reasons for that the most important of which we just told you. So do this now. Protect yourself with the VPN that we use and we trust. Use our expressvpn.com slash mission log link today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. Hey, Norman, depending on when you catch me uh, on my tablet or on my computer or on my phone, probably using ExpressVPN, there's a very good chance you will find me uh, where I do a lot of my work, and that would be in bed. Yes, not a small amount of my prep work for Mission Log is done right there. I'm watching episodes. I'm taking notes. I'm texting you. Can you believe they just did this? Yeah, I'm probably doing that from bed. Uh, Yes, my wild nights are lying down with my tablet and getting into the next episode of DS9 that we're reviewing. Or or I wake up in the morning and I grab the tablet and I want to see what people are saying on Discord and Twitter and Facebook to us. I do that all from my bed because it is the height of comfort at my world headquarters. Yes, in bed on a Helix Sleep mattress. And you might ask yourself, how did I get the right mattress? Well, I'm glad that I can tell you because you can too. You go to helixsleep.com slash mission log, and that is where you will find the Helix Sleep quiz. Helixsleep.com slash mission log. Two minutes of your time, that's all it takes to match you and your body type and your sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Everybody's unique. Helix knows that. You know that. I know that. They have several different mattresses to choose from. They have soft, medium, firm mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot or even a Helix Plus mattress for plus size folks. Now, I matched with the Twilight. Um, I wanted something that felt firm and I guess you could describe my sleep style as um, rolling all over the place. Never stays in the same spot twice. Uh, Something like that. Sure, it's a medical term. So I love it. It is a big upgrade over an older mattress and delivery and setup super fast and easy. So I love my Helix for sleeping, for working, uh, for not getting out of bed in the morning. Sometimes it's just too difficult because it's so comfortable. I completely understand. If there's one thing that ties the human race together, more so than, say, Gene Roddenberry's vision of this utopian future that we love talking about here on Mission Log, it's that we all go on mattress hunts every once in a while. We're all looking for that next better mousetrap of a mattress. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take this quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free so you don't have to go out there for the cumbersome and laborious task of looking for a mattress in a retail store. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Hallelujah. And and that's (laughs) one of the reasons why Helix is awesome. But don't take my word for it. Don't take John's word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So now just go to helixsleep.com slash mission log. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. 
and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights, risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, is this just one of the best uses of the holodeck? Wait, let me phrase that a different way. Best use of the holodeck, greatest use of the holodeck. And I know that I'm saying a holodeck, but I'm thinking back to all those holodeck episodes of TNG. And some of those were just way out of line. Something's going wrong. The safety parameters are off. uh, Things go awry. Even uh, Captain Picard gets hit with a uh, snowball. They got it all right here. And it's kind of funny for a show like Deep Space Nine, where often they're showing how they're the darker, grittier, edgier version of Star Trek. But this is the time where they get it right. And they say, no, 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 all that messed up stuff they did on TNG, we're going to get it right. This Hollow Sweet simulation, it's entertaining, it's historic, it's educational teaches the participants a thing or two about the culture of the past, and it allows them to grow as people because of it. That That's it. just the most amazing thing. You know, the, the best lessons learned are the ones that are through experience, not not through just a teacher telling you here's what to do. And it's all about experience in the Hollow Suite. Vic is programmed with empathy and care for the people around him in a really genuine, heartwarming way. He's the best expression so far, perhaps, of manufactured intelligence, I think, that we've seen in Star Trek. Maybe a little bit of Minuet's programming made it this far to make him so believable. Not not sure. Of course, we go back and rewatch uh, oh, Minuet so soon. Yes. Oh. Uh-huh. But remember, the yeah. Binars made her, and then she was gone. Um, and, and there was something that was seductive about her and very warm and human about her, but also something that was maybe a little, uh, maybe like a little cold. And Riker was trying to wrap his head around that. Here with Vic, it just feels natural right from the beginning. At this point, and I know that I've mentioned it before on episodes where we've talked about holosuite or holodeck simulations, when it's impossible to tell the difference between what's manufactured intelligence and what's quote-unquote real... Questions like whether or not he's alive or sentient, they just become academic at that point. I love the the positive angle that you're coming from mm-hmm. in this episode, John. Okay. I really do. And I want to feed off that, but I also want to be a little bit more of a counterpoint to where you are here oh, please in this do. episode. Please do. You know? yeah. Because I totally dig that, you know, your, your, you know how you feel about... It is entertaining. It is educational. It does give our characters this room for growth, this room for self-awareness and understanding. But there's, there. I guess it's kind of like the, the techno-babblist in me. Mm. Is that mm-hmm. a word, techno-babblist? Sure, sure. You, you speak fluent techno-babble, yeah. There we go. Yeah. There we go. And I have to ask, and, and I really kind of like just want to clear enough space here in the hollow suite for, you know, the, the quote-unquote elephant in the room, but... Mm-hmm. I think the one thing that gives me a little bit of a pause when it comes to my suspense of disbelief in this episode is where does a program 
that's as powerfully sentient as Vic Fontaine come from. <laughs> and now I know yeah. that it, it's kind of just um, ham-handedly explained away that, oh, it's Felix. Felix mm. created my spy program. We know how real and how well-detailed that was from our man Bashir. But think about what Vic is capable of doing and what he did in this episode. He literally jumped between hollow suites. He literally contacted War, uh, Odo through a closed communication system in the station. He also turned himself off. He also summoned yeah. his own audience. Yeah. So he's like... And he reaching... created Lola. Exactly. Yeah. He created Lola by yeah. basically um, by stealing, yeah. right? The uh, I guess it would be the software, the programming, mm-hmm. the architecture from um, Major Kira's facsimile from our man Bashir. Yeah. We're reaching like Moriarty level <laughs> sentience, right? And that yeah. didn't go so well, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of asked myself if creations like this are governed by uh, Asimov's three rules of robotics, or, or what are the what are the reasonable parameters that you could put on something like this and still allow creativity, still allow growth, and still allow some amount of freedom, but not so much freedom that they would, oh, I don't know, try to kill somebody in the holodeck, as we've seen before on TNG, because that kind of thing happens. Um, now, fortunately, Moriarty is contained, and even his attempt to take over the Enterprise wasn't really the Enterprise. It was the hollow suite simulation of the Enterprise within, you know, so it was an inception. It was the uh, the suite within the suite kind of thing. But yeah, Vic is special. And you have to ask yourself, well, how old, if we want to get really nerdy and technical and we say that, well, the TAS period, so right after the three years oh, of the five-year mission that we saw, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're dabbling with holodeck technology there. So we've had a good 100-plus years for this to develop. But how good can it be? How intuitive and how empathetic can the information within that hollow suite be without just being at a certain point, a total train wreck, like like an, uh, an overwhelming amount of information, an overwhelming amount of um, sort of self-interest in the uh, in that simulation. So I don't know. I, I and I was good with not having an explanation, or at least that explanation being Felix. But in any other circumstance, those questions that you raise are spot on. This just seems like a Pandora's box waiting to happen. <laughs> well, you know, I'll I'll address that a little bit later on. But okay. what I do love about Vic, though, you know, like I, I really do love, you know, um, the the idea of this character. This character has become the one thing in this entire series that they haven't had yet, at least at least in this episode. They haven't had a counselor. Yeah. Right? They haven't had somebody who just looks at an emotional problem at its at its rudimentary core. Yeah, God knows they all need it. Right? And <laughs> yeah. and he and he he delivered it in such a way where maybe it's because of the language barrier, maybe it's because of the style barrier, maybe it's because, you know, um that that Vic is just so easygoing and just so you know, so pure about his instincts and, and his advice, but he delivers his guidance in such a way 
where they don't feel threatened, at least in this case, Odo, they don't feel belittled. They don't feel like they aren't being treated like an adult. Yeah. Again, in this case, Odo or Kira, except for the one time that he did kind of uh, maneuver them into dinner together. Sure, sure. But it, it is interesting, though. Like, if we look at it as therapy, you know, who's to say that the right paradigm? We're, we're used to the idea, and I, I, I'm a big advocate of therapy. I think it's fantastic, whether you're feeling, you know, mentally healthy or not. It's just an interesting, worthwhile exercise to go through. But we have this sort of expected paradigm of the therapist who is trained in a particular way and what the setting is like and what that conversation is like. Um, this is a way that I like to think in the future. You could just look at it and go, well, what's really valuable is getting the human emotional response, getting the thought process going uh, so that the the subject can be introspective and thoughtful about those important questions. Why not do that in a 1960s lounge? Why not do that with a lounge singer who then takes the role of the therapist? So maybe that's what uh, Felix has had in mind all along. It's like, these people need help. I'm going to give it to them. <laughs> well, I think, you know, you and I have brought up something, um, and, and we have brought this idea to task uh, on a couple of occasions, especially where um, in, in, in uh, the, um, with the, uh, the, the prophets, mm-hmm. like, literally, like, wished away, like, the Dominion war fleet uh, in Sacrifice of Angels. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the um, element of deus ex machina. Yeah. And Vic is literally oh. a walking deus ex machina. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, can, he does have the ability to summon the elements that he needs in order to help these people, in this case, Odo, at will. Yeah. That gives him a tremendous amount of power to be able to affect the narrative, i.e. that gives the writers an incredible amount of flexibility to be able to craft a story that doesn't really have the, contr- the, um, the constraints that maybe make an episode a little bit more difficult to tell. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I I wonder if we'll get there, though, with Vic. I wonder if we will explore, because obviously we know that Vic is coming back. I wonder if we'll explore those limits and sort of the ethical questions about his very existence. And it's wonderful to have a genie in the bottle at your disposal, I guess is what I'm saying. Norman, I, I think he's more deus ex martini than deus ex machina. You win Thank so you. much right now. Thank you. You win. That'll be on a T-shirt, you know? too. Um, I do want to talk about sort of the, the romance aspect of this episode, because DS9 sometimes at its worst can be described as a soap opera. But here we have something that is more clever. It, it's a soap opera, yes, but it's done in a way to turn those conventions on their head. We, you know, from the beginning, we have to get these two together. And the friend has to contrive a way to do it. They get together, and they're surprised and embarrassed, but then it all works. That is a very simple story on paper, and it's been done a million times. And Star Trek is that stretchy enough format that you can squeeze in a story like that. But let's face it, Star Trek hasn't always done a very good job with comedy or with romance or some of these lighter aspects when we roll around to them. Or you do it, and then you forget it instead of it being payoff for something that builds or having somewhere to go once you've gotten there. And I know that on our show, we give a lot of uh, well-deserved grief to uh, the O'Briens, uh, you know, but, but here's the thing. It, we yeah. give grief because it is a failed experiment, and there was every opportunity there to actually 
build a family in the Star Trek universe and explore that. We almost started that with Wesley and Beverly, but then Wesley was too smart and we kind of had to just get rid of him. And there were very few scenes between Wesley and Beverly. So we didn't get to really go there with them. It, it was an attempt at a start of that. And then when you introduce Keiko and introduce their children involved, okay, great. We're actually going to do something that is real about the family dynamic and a personal dynamic in this you know, heightened dramatic space, but then we don't do it. And I feel like this is a way to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, let's explore romantic subplot. We can use our technology, we can use our, our tricks, we can make it very Star Trek, but we'll, we'll flip those conventions around a little bit and give the audience something that is not quite what they expect. But I do want to give a uh, tip of the hat here to Vic for some of his very good advice in this episode. Uh, first off, yeah, you know what? There's nothing wrong being friends with the girl you like, okay? He's right. He nails it right away what Odo's quote-unquote problem is with Kira, but he's like, that's fine. You're, you're a friend. Be friends. That's great. Let's see if we can change the script, but we can start from there. That's okay. Hey, you're halfway there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, loosen up. Have some fun. Advice that Odo has needed to take to heart for a very, very long time. And along with that, let your emotions out a bit, which is something that Odo, great to see him admit that he has emotions, <laughs> but he doesn't always let them out. And I think the most important bit of advice here from Vic is nothing like a tuxedo to make you feel like a million bucks. That is 100% spot on. Thank you, Vic Fontaine. And this is where I this is where I like Vic. This is this is like the lane where I like Vic, where he's just espousing kind of like the 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 cultural emotional zeitgeist of his era, like that nineteen sixties era, where things are a little bit more they're a little bit easier to I, I guess to decipher. You know, where men were men, women were women. They have certain motivations. It's just sit down and breathe and everything comes to you. You know, just relax, Pally. Everything mm -hmm. will be fine. But I think that when you take something like that and simplify it the way that Vic does, it's a little bit more difficult to overlay it in the world building, and I should say the inconsistent world building mm. of Kira's and Odo's relationship these past, say, two years. Let's not forget that at one point in time, there was that encounter with future Odo yeah. and Kira, where that future Odo outlined, children of time, yeah. outlined exactly how he felt for Kira and then laid the foundation for how Kira is now to behave around prime Odo, so to speak. Yeah. And then there was the entire betrayal that Odo exacted upon their relationship. Yeah. And yeah. how one, you know, one fortuitous evening at Dax's engagement party allowed them to reconcile their feelings. Okay. That being said, I buy Dax's and Worf's relationship to be one of the greatest, in comparison, <laughs> one of the greatest romances in history. Antony and Cleopatra level compared to how they've written Odo 
and Kira at yeah, this stage. Yeah, I, I mean, look, they, the, the DS9 writers sort of wrote themselves into a corner by having the moment in Children of Time, but at least it, it primed us. It gave us the idea that Odo can change. Odo can be uh, better, more emotionally available than he is, and, and that's all fine. I still, I agree with you that there is a big black screen with white lettering on it that says scene missing when it mm. comes to their reconciliation. Mm -hmm. it, it should have been episode missing or maybe several episodes missing because that was a lot for Odo to have to win back from Kira just on a basic uh, trust level. And we didn't earn that. They didn't earn that. It's, it's really unfortunate. But what I do like about this episode and where I think this episode works well is that I think you almost feel at a certain level that the writers are trying to they're trying to rectify something that they weren't either capable of addressing because of the way that the story structure was laid out or because they focused on Dax and Worf so much and kind of let, let you know, Odo and Kira's romance fall by the wayside. So I think that they're trying to, they're trying to heal a wound that's there, but they have to do it in a way where you have this omnipresent hollow program that allows him to be able to to put the whammy on them and to get them to reconcile with each other. Yeah. That's a lot to ask. That's yeah. a lot to ask of an audience. But at the same time, though, because it's done so well, because it's so charming and so innocent and so pure, you do forgive a lot because eventually, well, I'm just stealing basically my <laughs> final thoughts. So I think I'm going to stop right Let's there. Let's jump to the end. <laughs> It's sad that this story is happening in the middle of a war. Imagine Wayne working the room in a sharp suit. Well, John, it's not exactly quarter to three, but there's nowhere. Nobody in the place. Exactly. <laughs> and there's nowhere that I would rather be than here at the end of this episode, his way. And at the end of the episode, as we do on Mission Log, we look at, uh, does this episode still hold up to this day? And uh, what are the morals and meanings and messages that we've, uh, we've been able to, to find in this episode? So, John, this episode has your aesthetic written all over it from beginning to end, especially at mealtime with Kira and Odo. Let's talk about how this episode first held up for you, and then we'll jump into the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, look, from art direction alone, um, you know, there's not many people listening to the show who's been to my apartment, but it pretty much what, what you see is what you get. You know, the 60s decor and uh, a closet full of dinner jackets. So the, this this speaks to me. And talk about perfect casting of all the names that they kept kicking around, which we, we talked about before, um, to play Vic. I am so glad they got Jimmy Darren. Um, if you had, like, Steve Lawrence was close. They had written a scene for him, uh, but then the timing didn't work out, and it was for an episode a season or two back, and the timing didn't work out. When they actually got him to read it, he was busy. It didn't fit, so they just dropped it then. And I mentioned Frank Sinatra Jr. Um, but sometimes, like, the right person comes along at exactly the right time. And this was it. And he makes this episode. He makes this character. And I'm glad we'll get some more of him before uh, the series wraps up. 
here's what I like about how this fits into the overall season. So we've been through DS9 at its eloquent best with shows like Far Beyond the Stars. And we even saw it jump the shark with one little ship. Okay, all right. Look, to, me, to me, that was a low <laughs> moment. I know not to you, but this is why we do our show. Mm-hmm. And, and we have also seen direct confrontation of Star Trek's values and mission statement with incredibly well-written, yet immensely challenging episodes like In the Pale Moonlight. And that kind of inconsistency, we say, well, can you drop a fun, light adventure episode into this thing where you're doing these heavy pieces? And we've talked about how inconsistent it feels. And now we have DS9 using its setting for a romantic story that, honestly, it could have worked elsewhere, but they chose to do it and to make it their own. And... I look at this and I just want to reboot DS9 and start over with Vic Fontaine from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because he serves a purpose, he humanizes these characters. He's the hologram that they didn't know they needed all along. And and for that matter, I'm glad that we don't have a B-plot in this episode because we get to focus on what's important here. So you mentioned it, Norman. You know, they don't have a ship's counselor. Um, We don't we don't always have the characters filling these neat roles, which is one of the features of DS9, but they need somebody like this to humanize everybody around them. And John, I'm, um, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but I yeah. really do love what you say about seeing um, if, uh, if uh, you know, Vic could have been there from the very beginning, because what an evolutionary chart this character could have had. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just imagine for a moment, if you will, Norman, without spoiling anything, a series where you have a holographic character from the beginning who then gets to change and evolve over time. Just going to throw that out there, and uh, maybe what? we'll get around to it one day. When? <laughs> so I feel like this is one of those times where Ira and I were watching the same Star Trek when it came to TNG. And we realized that what we needed was someone to relax the crew, someone to play some real music, to show them how to party. And this is what we got. So, yes, this episode speaks directly to me. Now, let's be real here for a moment. I'm not naive or starry-eyed enough to realize that there weren't some enormously problematic aspects of the early 1960s or any other point in human history that you want to point to, to be real. But I can absolutely appreciate the things we've lost. Jazz, a quiet nightclub, dinner jackets, the benefits of living in a slightly more analog world. I love it all. Um, I will say this is a minor, minor, minor quibble. I'm not a huge fan of the song Fever. Boo. I know it was important to Kira. <laughs> I know. Well, it was important to Nana to do that. And uh, that's another bit of trivia that I left out. But uh, she describes it in Terry's book. Um but again, this is me. It's personal preference. This episode now sits in my top five of DS9 easily. And it's probably not really Star Trek. I mean, yeah, yes, it's Star Trek, but not in the way that we talk about it here with the morals, meanings, messages. But that's okay because this one comes out as better than okay. So, yes, it holds up. Uh, what about you, Norman? Because, by the way, I love how you've pushed back at me a few times in this. This is what I love about what we do. Top five is a, you know, that's a, a, a very high distinction when it comes to favorites. Is it more top five 
in terms of Star Trek and at least here in DS9, or is it top five because it aesthetically sits more pleasingly with you? I, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to get to our top fives at the end of the series, or maybe top ten, or however we do it. And what I'm going to have is episodes of DS9 that are very far apart from each other tonally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that you know you'll have heavy emotional episodes, you'll have heavy heavy action episodes, and you'll have a heavy romance episode like this. Mm-hmm. So that that's why I'm holding it in really high regard right now. And mm-hmm. something else may come along and displace it, but I like that I've seen tastes of DS9 that are tonally very different from each other. Mm-hmm. No, I understand, and I don't think that actually I'm that far off of where you are. It's just that there are a couple things in this episode for me that that made me sit up and take a little bit of uh, a notice of my own understanding of where we are in Deep Space Nine and where this episode actually sits, at least comfortably for me. I have to ask you a question, though. I'm going to ask you this, mm-hmm. and I'm going to ask the audience this. Is it a bad thing that I just wanted to watch an entire episode of James Darren as Vic just sing the entire episode? That, that That's what I want, Sure. Right. Sure. I, I just I, I want the Vic Fontaine guide to life, and I want him to sing and uh, do some monologues, and uh, I'd be fine with that. I yeah. mean, we did make mention mm-hmm. of this offline, yeah. um, and uh, we did kind of like poke fun at the fact that literally every single song that was chosen for Vic to sing was literally telling the story of that particular scene itself. Like at yeah. the very beginning, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, or towards the very end or in the middle, especially at the dinner scene where they were talking about, you know, I've got you under my skin. Oh, all right. Great. I Great mean, moment. what he yeah. was singing was what Odo was literally like emoting or at least yes. with his eyes was emoting. Yeah. And I thought that was beautiful. I mean, I don't mean any offense to, to Renee and Anna. They were mm-hmm. unbelievably good in this episode. But when it comes to James Darren, there are just some performers out there you know, and, and this was just a coup d'etat of mm-hmm. uh, of casting calls. Uh, there, there are just some performers that are just magnetic. That's the best way to describe it. They can capture yeah. your attention with a word or with a glance or with a smile. That's James Darren in this episode. And I have every, every confidence and zero doubt that this is the way he is until the end of the series. Yeah. Which is quite unfortunately not enough episodes for him to be in yeah right <laughs> right right but uh, in all honesty john like i spent more time in this episode trying to figure out how sentient vic is and mm. how powerful his programming is because his abilities at least within the holodeck or perhaps even within the systems of deep space nine were fairly omnipotent Right. Because he was able to he was able to exercise his powers within and without the hollow suite, especially when he contacted Quark through a secure channel. He was able to uh, walk. Odo. Oh, I'm Odo. sorry. Odo. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But he was able to walk literally between the walls of hollow suites and yeah. enter Kira's private meditation session. Yeah. Now, I get that. I understand that. I know it's a contrivance that we have to at least accept because we have to move this narrative along between Odo and Kira's romance. But when you add something like that, you know, to an audience that's clearly as intelligent as the Star Trek audience is, I can't be the only one who's asking these questions. 
right, when it comes to yeah. world building. That all being said, it does provide for a very entertaining and well-paced story. His abilities move the story along. So this is where I referenced it earlier on in my observations as this is the John Hughes episode <laughs> of Deep Space Nine. Now, for yes. those of you who don't know John Hughes, or if you're too young to have known his work at the time when he was at the height of his uh, directorial powers, John Hughes, he mastered the quintessential romantic comedy trope. He was a director in the 1980s and the late 1990s, or the early 1990s, um, and he's most famous for films like Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But in this case, in this particular case, and in this particular comparison, 16 Candles. So this episode is charming and adorable, somewhat fluffy and endearing, mm-hmm. sentimental and lighthearted. All of these great tropes about, you know, uh, trying to get two people, two characters that you love together. Mm-hmm. And it's very kind of Cyrano de Bergerac-ish kind of way. Yeah. You know, in a kind sure. of way. Sure. Um, but you and I have very similar aesthetics and aesthetic tastes. And I love that, you know, entire era of the 60s Vegas glamour and glitz and, yeah. you know, the stylings of Sinatra and the Rat Pack. And I think that just completely hits on all marks here. But I'm going to quote one of your quotes here oh Mm -hmm. i said in many ways when it comes to presenting contrivances of what could have easily fallen flat as what you would call a hat on a hat Uh, a romantic trope about a romantic trope is what i personally experienced in this episode but it's done so well that the performances sell me they probably have sold you. They probably sell the audience. And where it could have been a hat on a hat, I think that where James Darren comes into play here is being able to sell a fantastic, believable character that could have easily turned into cannon fodder for the cynics out there. Nice. Nice. All right. Yeah. We, we, we don't need cannon fodder for the cynics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so plenty of that. Plenty of that out there. Well, let's talk about messages here, because we may look at this as a light, fluffy, romantic episode set in this idyllic version of the 1960s. Um, but it is Star Trek. It is Mission Log. We have to ask if there are morals, meanings, messages to take away. And um, I, I think I found a few. And I think they're worthwhile, even in this light, fluffy context here. Maybe one of them is fake it till you make it. Because Odo actually learns a valuable lesson in that very idea. Think of that scene where he's sitting there playing, not playing the piano. Um, It wasn't about learning how to play the piano. It was about learning how to be comfortable in his skin and be the center of attention and be a part of this group and enjoy the moment. So he had to fake it in that moment, but then he made it. He came out at the other end. I just love that bit where he's, he's trying to jive with the band. Cool. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's such a little moment, but he made it. He made it at that moment. There's no teacher like that kind of experience that he has. Um, and you could even say the same thing where Vic is trying to get him to go out with the girls when they go to the dunes and see Shecky. You know, it's, yeah, just it, look, just come along. Just be a part of it. This is the way that you will learn. Sometimes in life, 
You need some pointers, a wingman, a bit of uh, manufactured fate. That's all perfectly okay as long as the real you is front and center. So that's what Vic's trying to do. He's not trying to manipulate Odo into being someone he's not. He's trying to break through and figure out who is the real you underneath this icy facade that you have. And um, there's another one here that I, I think is important and relevant. You know, speaking for myself, but I, I think I, I speak for other people too. You know, we've all been through challenges, struggles, uh, changes that were expected or unexpected. And then you have to pick yourself up and, uh, and brush yourself off and go back on with your life. And there is never a wrong time to reinvent yourself and be who you want and go for what it is that you want. It, Odo is given this opportunity to do this. And it's a life-changing moment for him. So it might look very simple on the surface. Vic is saying, look, wear the tux. Bring a little luxury into your life. Drink the drink. Even though it's a fake drink, it's okay. <laughs> Enjoy your life for a moment. Try on this other experience. And there's no time like the present to do it. Sometimes you just need a little encouragement to do so. So, John, uh, if I may quote the immortal lyrics of one of the world's most revered bands, that would be the supergroup ABBA. Winners of the Eurovision uh, Song Contest, of course. Yes. Um, you mean uh, Agnef, Benny, Bjorn, and um, Anna Fried? That's exactly who I'm saying. That's okay. exactly who we're referencing. Okay. Just wanted to make sure we're talking about the same ABBA. And if I may, if you change your mind, I'm the first in line. Honey, I'm still free. Take a chance on me. But in this case, in all honesty, though, and in this case... I think this episode is saying take a chance on life itself. Live your best life and take a chance on yourself. No matter where that decision may take you, whether in a relationship or in a career, your dream is whatever is in front of you that makes you truly happy and complete. Too many times we find ourselves in this endless loop of thinking about what could be as opposed to what is. And like Odo, we're continuously and, and consistently measuring our own lives and our own uh, happiness by the standards of others. And perhaps it takes the intervention of a, a deus ex machina effect like Vic Fontaine to snap us out of this endless cycle of self-doubt and emotional protectionism. I mean, that's what Odo is dealing with here. There's a scene where... The very first time he felt great about himself, his first reaction was, what will my colleagues think of me being up on stage? Why does that matter? And mm -hmm. how quickly did he shut himself off? This is how a lot of us react to feeling that first inkling, that true first inkling of happiness. Do we deserve it? Is this who we are? Am I allowed to feel this? Am I allowed to make that connection with other people? So we've all made decisions in our lives. I know that I've made a lot of decisions in my lives and they stopped me from, from true happiness. And do I have regrets? A few, but then again, too few to mention. 
And, and that's how I'm trying to live my life right now. And perhaps that's what Vic is trying to say. I mean, he gave the advice to Odo to do what he had to do to see his life through without exemption. And I think ultimately, we have to plan each of our own charted courses and take careful steps along life's byway. But more, and much more than this, we have to live life our way. Or, as Vic quoted, to whatever makes you happy. That was far out, man, and I can dig it. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, The Reckoning. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. If last week's hollow forgery had been programmed by Felix, it would have been a very different episode. How would you sing the words, it's a fake? transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.